You're listening to AI Impressions with hosts Kate Dudzik, Eric Yensu, and John Diltz, a podcast for the curious, where we explore the spaces between ones and zeros. Is your mom also in film? No, she can just, she just wakes up in the morning and then she just goes, goes, goes and doesn't stop until uh, she's done everything and just rests at night for a few hours. Amazing. See, I'm, I'm a siesta person. I work real hard in the morning till about 11 o'clock, make some breakfast, take a nap. <laughs> <laughs> and then nap. start again around one or two. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes I'll go to 10 o'clock at night. Other times I just, you know, run out of steam around five or six. Regardless, exactly. I can cook dinner and that's the end of it. Started to rinse and repeat. <laughs> oh, I love that. So um, today, Eric, what's our topic du jour? What's our topic du jour? Um, I don't know. I don't know. Um, what should we talk about? <laughs> what should we talk about? <laughs> were we, did we finish getting through what we did last time? Or were, were we, we continuing? We did not. That? You know what? Um, so for anyone who's listening, we've been trying to kind of establish a cycle of bringing kind of something to the table on rotation, starting with Eric, then John, then myself. And one thing we'd like to do as we keep moving forward with the podcast is bring in guests every fourth episode too. But until we kind of get to that space and until we kind of hit our flow, uh, we've been, yeah, hitting this rotation. But I can tell you, Eric, to answer your question, we definitely did not finish talking about what we were talking about last time because we were talking about symbols and signs especially how language is a symbol and culture is made of symbol and pretty much everything is a symbol processing system that could possibly exist in the universe. So I don't even see how we could possibly ever be done talking about that. And on that note, you know, I didn't quite finish in with like history for where we're at right Mm -hmm. now. And, you know, when that, when that comes in, you're also dealing with the fact that symbolism has come back full force you know it, it fell out of vogue for a while and it was still a research mm-hmm. field but it really wasn't put in in an engineering side of things with the exception of a few key you know problem domains um, but nowadays no. it's big i was just gonna say um that is super interesting okay so you're right in that symbol systems and symbol processing systems were very much the start of AI. And that's kind of where, you know, mm-hmm. things originated with like block world and soar and like GOMS modeling and stuff like that. But it fell out of vogue. Do you want to dive a little bit deeper into that? Yeah. I mean, you, you got to look at when we started kind of coming out of that, you know, what they refer to as the AI winter. I don't know, something I'm going to be touching on. Uh, a little bit in uh, one of my little shorts that's hopefully going to get done this week. Um, <laughs> little chaos. But um, when we started coming out of there and it started making sense again, you know, um, for practical AI is like, was kind of what I like to call it. And that really didn't happen until I guess you could say it started being talked about toward the late 80s because it was really the rise of 
the, the personal computer, the idea of a computer on a desk that didn't occupy, you know, office space, you know, large conference room style things. Um, but it really started coming into play, um, you know, probably in the 90s. I mean, the concept of neural structures is a concept in human cognition, especially connectism, prominence, that type of thing was kind of an 80s, 90s border thing right there. And then all of a sudden we had a little bit of a boom because computationally we had a lot of other stuff going on. So the concepts of what we deal with a lot now, like natural language processing, were really starting to gain traction and laying that groundwork for where we are today. But the more importantly, where those underlying things underneath it is we started looking more into vector machines, which is what we refer to. It's partially kind of what we call embeddings these days. Um, not entirely a parallel, but close. Um, decision trees, Bayesian networks. Those types of things are mathematical representations of patterns. So there's no real symbolism to it outside of the fact that I guess you can say the symbol is the problem. So Bayesian, you know, most people have heard of Bayesian networks. Um, your spam filter is a, a, typically a Bayesian network of some type and everything kind of self-learning, you know, zero shot type stuff. Um, but that would be the symbol, the symbol alone. This is junk. Internet. Not so much in, a, in a, a, the concept to really frame uh a larger concept that we would think of in symbolism. You know, I, I study Japanese and it, it uses a lot of, you know, hiragana, katakana, you know, kanji and that type of stuff. And they all have meaning, especially when you start talking kanji and they have meaning. And a lot of time in Japanese language, they have multiple meanings based on where they sit in the sentence. We didn't use that type of symbolism. Uh, I'm going to hit pause right here because you're immediately making me think about Davidson's speaker here dynamics. So when it comes to the speaker, there's three specific stages to getting an utterance. So any form of communication and a symbol out. And then there's actually four stages that the hearer goes through to produce what we like to call understanding. And it's what they kind of take away from the speaker. So when you say like the lack of, of symbolism, I see what you mean on like one level. And mm -hmm. I also know like it kind of comes back. So just, just to kind of give you all a bit of perspective, when it comes to speakers, <clears throat> there's the intention of what they want to produce and what they want to share or what they want or what they need to. If you're talking about a system like say a neural network or something like that, you could even argue that the purpose of being is that intention. There's the generation of what that utterance would be. So putting it all together in a way that you believe that the audience or hearer or re reception or receptacle would understand it best. And then there's the synthesis, which is the actual generation of the symbol. So as I speak to you now, the synthesis would be me pushing air and creating pitch and putting weight into each word. So it would produce the right auditory symbol and linguistic symbol for the hearers, so the receiver of this, to understand. Which so is I'm, where I'm, we're at right now with concepts of like chat GPT and the large language exactly. models and everything. We exactly. This is only just recently have 
we achieve this in scale. It's it's, it's always awesome. been there to a degree, but it's been you know very hyper focused into you know very high end machines or whatever the case may be. Yeah. Now it's more in in mass, and I think and this is kind of partially where like the the quote unquote hysteria is starting to come mm. and everything, um, because those of us that have been around, you know, in my case, you know, close to a lot of decades um, yeah. um, not as many as that would sound but I, i'm up there you know i'm going into the third decade here so anyway um that being yeah. said you know we're when you start playing with it i've seen this coming up for probably 15 years where we started seeing generative um concepts and we saw it in the engineering side of things with networking firewalls mm -hmm. Denial of service interruptions, and the, we mm -hmm. use these types of generative algorithms. And I don't think anyone—I didn't even realize we were using them yeah. <laughs> until recently. It was obscure. Think about it. But, yeah, and and that's just it. Like when you're producing anything that gives off some sort of generated result from doing mm -hmm. a quote-unquote thought process, that's what you're essentially doing. And I think this is why, personally, before I get into the here parts. It's important to understand just how much the study of humans and the study of cognition has influenced artificial intelligence design. And this is always, always where I get that disconnect between it's computer only Yeah, exactly. Well, it's not the only model, actually. Sorry, I, I misspoke. There's biological models that are often used as well that are not the same as human models. Like, so, gen like um, genetic algorithm type stuff? Uh, like genetic algorithms, um, there's also like uh, looking at ecosystem modeling uh, as a influence. A lot of people have looked Game at things life. like ants. <laughs> yeah, there's like ant modeling, um, various fractal levels of nature influencing various models and things like that. It's not my area of expertise, obviously, as a cognitive scientist, but I do know that people have used models outside of human brains and intelligence to model uh, artificial intelligence. But focusing back on on the AI that we kind of work with, and like you said, it, it is the majority, like I'm, I'm not gonna lie to you, it's like 80, 90% of, of all artificial intelligence. Um, but yeah, there is intelligence outside of human form, like, ooh, the slime that can solve those labyrinths. Those are crazy. They're really cool. Uh, check them out, there's some YouTube videos of them, but I'm getting off track. We don't think about the generation of an utterance because speaking is such an innate part of being human. And I don't even mean just like spoken word, even just gestures or signing, you know, even babies and infants communicating a need or a thought or an opinion even is just such a part of being human that when we look at, you know, artificial intelligence systems and things like that, or even just at each other, it, it become something we almost take for granted. And so, yeah, coming back to my point, the reason why I think computer science could benefit from understanding the artificial intelligence as a discipline is because it's rooted in cognition. It's rooted in neuroscience, as you brought up, John. And, you know, as I'm sure you're gonna dive into soon, Eric, there's influences of culture and societal dynamics, the way populations interact, you know, in the way that these systems are designed. And when you understand where the influence comes from, from those external domains, you're better able to leverage the tools of AI or even create tools or design systems, you know? Yeah, that's so interesting. That's so interesting. 
And uh, yeah, like me as a creative artist, like my worldview is really uh, a lot in terms of, uh, you know, the concept of God. You know what I mean? Like me, I'm a big Bible guy. It's like my favorite book. Like so many stories come from there. I can say like a lot of original stories and like, you know, they come from different cultures as well too. And, I, and I'm, I've been well-read in things and well-versed in terms of, you know, different religious texts, different ancient texts and all these kind of things. And the reason why, uh, and probably because like I speak English and I'm, you know, I, I live in North America, but the reason why the Bible is one of my favorite books is because um, it helps me piece together things and, and put it in some sort of a linear story. It's a, it's a good story. And we come with like storytelling. So it helps us understand things. So in terms of the limitations of the human mind, I always think about um, what I would call God's mystery. Okay. Because that shows the limitation of like, even us as human beings, like our, our, our genius. And to side note, I was thinking about this at the gym yesterday, like was it yesterday, two days ago, I was at the gym and I'm a freaking gym bro, or whatever. Like I'm very comfortable at the gym. I always go there, my friends there. Like, right <laughs> and, and I like, like I talk trash. Like if we ever, like, trust me, if we worked in the same building, I never knew you guys, I'd be saying some off the cuff comment and we become pretty much how me and Kate met. I was just going to say that's literally how we became friends. I I, I literally, so it's so funny when you talk about like utterance and speech because I look at it as you have a frequency, which is a thought, Mm -hmm. and then you actually signal and broadcast this with your your speech. You're broadcasting what your thought is and you're trying to signal something. And if somebody catches on that signal, then you're yeah. going back and forth with the communication, just like pretty much the audio thing we're doing now or in terms of radio. Yeah. So I was at the gym yesterday and there's this young man and like I was a young boy before, which is interesting because time is <laughs> But there's this young man, about 22 years old, and he has like braces and he's like Aww. this jack, jack boy, all committed to the workout, committed to the workout, committed to the workout. And he's a big a bit of a screamer. <laughs> bit of a screamer at the gym. So I always know what he's doing. And then I was like, he has all these weights and all these plates like stacked up. Wait, was he peacocking or was he actually genuine? He's dying. He's pushing it. Oh, man. Laughing, actually screaming helps you. Like it's a scientific proven fact. Like, it helps you. Like Listen to tennis players. I mean, the US Open just ended and everything. Yeah, it helps you move yeah. more weight, actually. Okay, amazing. And he wants, I'm not sure his ambition, but he's taking this workout really seriously. He's supposed to be like bodybuilding. Okay. And then I'm like, how are you doing? He's like, I'm not excited about lifting these weights. And I told him, I'm like, you should do it in your head first. Interesting. You should do it in your mind first. Like before you, when you're about to lift your waist, you're about to do a set of 10, you should close your eyes and visualize yourself doing 10. And I'm not sure if he took my advice, but when I was over there, I was looking at him, I saw all these heavy weights and it's a strong guy. And I'm like, yeah. it's so funny because as human beings physically, like we're not the strongest beings on the planet. It's our mind that, that separates yeah. it. So I was so peculiar. I was like, this guy's so strong, but I'm not sure if he's using his mind. He'd probably be stronger. You know, it's, it's funny you say that. I had you know, a story of an old friend. Um, he's, a, he's a pilot, and he was mm-hmm. an instructor early on and was in a plane crash with one of his students. 
Literally, and I remember visiting. It was like two days before Christmas. I remember visiting him in the hospital, and everything. He was all banged up. But and they walked away. But the whole thing is, is both of his knees were shattered, but he still found a way to pull his student out of the plane uh, when it crashed in the field. And there's there's stories of this and everything going with what you're saying, Eric, about like you know using your mind and everything, visualizing things. Um, in engineering, at least from my perspective, I, I'm kind of synesthetic in that sense. And everything like when I look at code or I look at a problem, it, it's if it's a real abstract problem or something I'm not grokking real well and everything. It's it, to me it's cloudy, it's gray or even shades of red. It, and it, it requires me to just kind of focus in a way that I almost, my eyes almost unfocus it, for lack of a better term. And I just visualize it, you know, what's it going to take and everything and things assemble for me. Um, it's why when I get asked all the time and it, it's, it's a great meme for programmers, but it's very accurate for me and everything. That's amazing. How'd you fix that bug? I was working on something yeah. else. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, you know, what I love about that is the two, both of your stories together actually show like both sides of this problem because in one way, or I guess in always, your brain is this insanely cool tool that you can leverage to help you do the best you can with your life. And in a lot of ways you can simulate success. Like you were talking about Eric, you know, where you see yourself succeeding, you manifest it. And then there's other ways too, where you can be your own worst enemy, like with procrastination. So a lot of times people who imagine sending the text or doing the phone call and running through it in their mind and kind of stimulating that experience, forget to do it more often. There's a few studies about this, and I think they actually did one when it came to students studying for exams or doing well on exams. And I'll have to get that, those details for you, but it was really interesting because there's a, there's a line that you get to where imagining doing well is good. But if you imagine too many of the steps in between without actually putting it to action, you can end up tricking yourself almost into procrastinating more because you're like, well, I went through it in my head. And even though that may not be your conscious top level thought, your brain is already just like, yeah, but I did the work. And it's like, no, you did not do the work. Analysis you know, paralysis. Yeah, exactly. Like you shoot people in the butt, right? <laughs> well, it's so interesting you say that because like, as I said, like, according to like my worldview. Yeah. Everything's gonna come down to like what you actually believe and like how you, you practice thing. That's like yeah, kind of like the test, the test right. of your life. Like it's so interesting, right? That's why I said like, even if right. I was going to like, even from a, even if you're gonna like, like, let me just take like, mm. cause this is not like some evangelist like podcast, but let's take a secular view of like um, a religious study and text, right? Sure. So, um, in terms of, let's say, um, you're a westernized, down south Baptist Christian guy. Okay, let's just say you are, right? Sure. And I would say, like at a cursory level, your belief system would be that you must have faith mm -hmm. in the Judeo-Abrahamic God of the Bible. You must model Jesus Christ in a way in which you're supposed to, to live your life. And this is the mindset that will get you your physical goals and also reach spiritual levels. 
Right. It was very interesting because like I always, when we're talking about symbols and things like that, we start looking at yeah. archaic levels. Yeah. I always look at the ancient world as more advanced in a way. And now when hmm. we were, if we were all to like, if there was to be some sort of cataclysmic event, I'm sure people, and then there was a new society built, I'm sure they would need sort of Rosetta Stone to even look at our emojis. Just like <laughs> oh yeah especially the way we use them in context oh, yeah. Yeah. Like, like why they send in vegetables to each other like well like, but here's the them. thing you know yeah. I'm, I'm in my mid portion late 40s and i sit back and everything and i get these emojis just chatting yeah. with people and stuff like that and you know, i'm taking a class i got a tutor right now and she'll send me things with an emoji i have to look it up because I have the faintest <laughs> clue what they're talking about. <laughs> uh, right? If it wasn't for like the emoji wiki, it, it, I would not be able to communicate yeah. in, in this day and age. And it's it's an absolute riot. Yeah. I was thinking about this just last right? night. But, and that's what's so interesting because like Google or the internet is the new, I said, I'm just like, I always say I was more of a guy like in 2023, like BC. That's okay. kind of like my mindset. I just live in like 80. But like, we have the Library of Alexandria on the like at the fingers, like are at our fingertips. Sure. Like I remember back in the day, and I was lucky because my dad had encyclopedias and stuff like that. So you have to like look in the dictionary and yeah. look at this and like. But like the one thing I feel like in this digital age, it's obvious like that we must have sort of arrogance that we like think you know everything just because information yeah. is like so prevailing at our fingertips. I want to touch on that though because. I noticed that, you know, and, and I've actually kind of watched this kind of happen as like the internet kind of proliferated, you know, general society, as I like to say it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when I was online in my, you know, late teens, I mean, like I had a modem at one point, I kid you not, it was the size of a PC. And I, I mean, I used it for a doorstop for years. I lost it in one of my moves. It was, I, I was kind of tragic, yeah. but it, to me, I, I've also watched, and I know there's tons of studies on this, I'm sure Kate will time it, but everyone, you know, that, that TLDR, too long, didn't read, mentality started setting into place. So people became almost micro-experts at things rather than real true expertise. And I think that's why AI, especially right now with like things like ChatGPT and Claude and those types of things, I think that's why they're so blown away because now all of a sudden it's it's almost like people are a little bit more empowered to kind of test their own limits but uh -huh. are they i mean it's one of the things that kind of worries me kate and i have had many a many a conversation on this subject you know on you know and we're probably going to do a half a dozen podcasts on like the, the ethical and that type of stuff at oh, some oh, point yeah. but it it really it worries me, um, you know, it, it's, it really is. It's kind of that, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a sports fan, you know, that that armchair quarterback or something like that. Mm. And, and meanwhile, he's got the pizza stain in the beer. You know, it, it, it come on, man, yeah. you know, tell him all you want. I want to see you get off of your backside and do it. And but that's well, how like, I grew up. You know, well, my dad was like, if you're going to criticize me, show me. <laughs> I have... I have something to say. To, so, like, if we're going to stay on, like, the topic, uh, 
Okay, if we're gonna stay on the topic of like football, I'm gonna say uh, philosophy because I'm just like I'm never gonna stop this passion. Let's <laughs> go. Like, so like this is crazy off last week because the feedback, the feedback of the we just are so connected at yes. this point to every phenomenon in life. So like back in the day, like in terms of like classic football, um, the sports the sports really expanded by broadcasting. Once sports became on television and not just a live event, then mm-hmm. people start to become more engaged. Mm-hmm. But I'll tell, I can argue to John that the biggest like thing when it comes to like um, how coaches are now in football and how fans are come from the game matted. When people yeah. can start seeing their own and picking plays and all these kind of things, mm-hmm. that was like the first simulation of like these processes. So and now you have somebody that like, I'm telling you, somebody that knows statistics and knows how to analyze data. That's why I'm a golfer. <laughs> is now being advanced as young coaches at the age of 30 years old past people that actually played the physical game for like years. Because yeah, I mean, you're, 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 you're touching in on the, the money ball concept back when, the, when they started looking at data in order to make influential influential decisions on individuals in Major League Baseball, which is the, the cornerstone of all the sports at this point. Yeah. Um, and it's funny because it's even crippled into, and I, and I do say that, that we're accurately, it's crippled sports in that sense. And I, uh, Actually, one thing to, sorry yep. for you on that, is I would also say um, it's not even just the, the statistics or the mathematics or whatever, simulating the plays and practicing over and over and over through video game is definitely a huge part of that too not just the money ball aspect but also just like practice and simulation there's a study i can't have to dig it up and link it somewhere there was a study of professional gamers or esports people Mm -hmm. and they're their neural activity, they measured it with, with football players, hockey players, baseball, mm-hmm. basketball, and, and put them. Their mental, you know, athleticism, because it really is, you know, when you oh, use your brain and you use it well, it's, an, it's, 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 it's a like a muscle. Yeah. Um, their mental athleticism a lot of times was on par or better than most professional sports people who, mm-hmm. you know, just in general. Um, there's, there's some key differentiators, but it, it, you know, obviously they're perfectly fine with yelling for a hot pocket and a Red Bull, mm-hmm. but mentally they're probably sharper than a vast majority of our workforce, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, which it, that really kind of blew me away. I am a gamer. I love my games. Mm-hmm. Um, lately, it's been a cross pollination with AI okay. and the games. You're, Eric, you were talking about I have, a question. I have a question for both of you. I have a question for both of you. Yes, sir. How at the end of a So this is like at the end of a game, how is it determined? Like who won? Like, what do you look at? Oh, I don't play like that. What do you look at? Like, if you're playing a football game and then the football game, what um, do you, what is the signal or the symbol to determine who won the game? And it's the score. Because, like, math is the best. I play different games. Math. I'm just confused myself from this part. <laughs> it's interesting because now that's what's, I feel like most of people's push in this life, like, recently is like a lot of it comes down to like money revenue. Like, that's it. Like, a lot of people that are getting into AI in terms of people that, like, love using it for in terms of resources, like, you know what? 
I can use this to be more efficient, which is yes. saving like my time. I'm guilty. I'm guilty. Also, and Mike, I can make more money. Both of you, before we walk too far away from this, as we're moving into an excellent point, Eric, and you are 1000% correct in saying this, I just want to circle back and uh, say, I think one of the most interesting, interesting things woof, about the things that you have said to me that's kind of jumping out is pride. From everything that you brought up in the beginning, all I could think was, you know, when you were talking about like the uh, let go and let God kind of mentality or the, you know, uh, even sports players who end up excelling. When you say, oh, you know, God has a plan for me or the universe is looking out for me or the planets are in the right alignment for me to take this opportunity or whatever it is. In a way, you're unshackling yourself from holding yourself down and entering almost a more mindful state of being where you let go of some of that stress or that constant need to hold yourself accountable to an impossible standard or, you know, not to project too much of myself into this, but, you know, kind of policing yourself into that perfectionist mind state where you say, oh, you know, X, Y, and Z, because if you have faith or if you have you know, some sort of belief that it'll be okay or a predetermined system of, of fate, anything to that set, um, there is a lot of power in that because it enables you to be humble. And humility is one of the greatest strengths and common attributes of experts, true experts, not these BS people who are like posturing their way through life. No, a, a true expert asks questions. Yeah. Well, the, the, the best people I've ever worked for and something yeah. I hold myself to and accountable as a leader, you know, in the engineering mm -hmm. field is I'm only as good as the people I surround myself with. Uh -huh. yeah, but absolutely. in the same breath, you know, I've managed teams over 100 people. I can't give the individual aspect to it. And, and I, I do the, the thing yeah. like, look, if you if you're not willing to ask for help and be mm -hmm humble or however you want to call it and say, I'm struggling with this. Yeah. Um, I can't do anything. So, but yet it still falls on me. Yeah. But, like Eric, you know, on, with, with what you're saying and everything, I mean, one of the things that I've noticed coming up and I love looking at just, um, I, I developed, well, I, I developed an AI that allows me to kind of scour and kind of summarize some of the things that are going on. And some of the things that I've started playing around with are some of the, um, the outlier conversations that are really kind of powerful conversations on how people are looking at AI. Mm -hmm. and, um, because I'm interested in a lot of the fear mongering that's happening. Mm -hmm. And there seems to be you know, to, to loop this back into symbolism, anyway, there, there really does seem to be a fear of, you know, replacement. Anyway, and this goes, you, know, you can see this has been Asimov for, what, 40 years. He wrote books on robotics and the laws of robotics, oh, yeah. but how they ended up ultimately replacing us. Anyway. I mean, Pixar mm. touched on it, man. I mean, you know, think about the cruise ship with Wally -E and stuff like that. Um, but it, it's, it's not real. Uh, so when you come back to it, I've noticed that there is kind of some fringe elements. And we even mm -hmm. saw this with Google about a year ago, a little less than a year ago, with that one engineer mm -hmm. saying that Google's barb was sentient. Mm -hmm. And we're starting to see, and I'm even seeing murmurs of things popping up that give me a chuckle because they're, they would be great setups or plot lines. <laughs> 
for books or TV okay. shows. But some of these people are really kind of looking at the AI as the next symbol or almost like the next coming. And that's that's scary as hell, man. I, I mean, I don't know any other way to, to voice that, but it's, well, it's, it's very real. But it has to be because in terms of like human perspective, like if you have doubt and worry about something, you're going to you're going to fill your knowledge like it's human nature to fill your knowledge gaps with negative thoughts. It just is absolutely what it is. And that's why, like, it's important to have knowledge about things to form a correct picture of, Mm -hmm. of what's going on. And like, just like real quick, mm-hmm. uh, not to mention having that, that calmness enables you to not react completely emotionally. Like when you enter that fight or flight state and you're fixating, hyper fixating on the catastrophizing and shit like that, you're not thinking logically about the problem space. You're not enabling yourself to engage with your prefrontal cortex and kind of go, oh, is it really going to take over and steal my job? No, you're too emotional. I challenge that a little bit. As an engineer and a developer, I need to be skeptical. I need to be. That's a different point. I'm just going to pass the mic back to Eric so he can finish his thought that I really. No, what what I'll tell you is um, like, and I'm always like, I read everything I know, like, whatever, all the conspiracies, all this, like, I, I just love all the information. But I'll tell you, in terms of the worldview that's like projected through the TV, the average citizen at this point would probably believe that the government determines whether the sun comes up and down. That's how much they feel like life is out of their control and it's controlled by the powers that be. And I feel like it's projected in that certain way for people to kind of submit to to different systems and also to be bit players in people's narratives. Uh-huh. That's what I really think. But it's so funny because uh, I want to make an argument to y'all, which because using your own language, because you're talking about teams, you're talking about this. Um, and I told you I have my worldview, but I love talking about philosophies and like debate, uh-huh. not debating, but like I want to be like, show me, tell me what you think because you're telling me something, I want to confirm it. I feel like at this point, it's hard to like argue against the notion that life is a game. It's a game. But, okay, okay sidebar, I do believe it is a game um, because I believe it. But that, that, that's another a rant for another day. Um, so, Johnny, you game theory. Yeah, yeah, don't even get me started, man. I've been right. in here too long. Right. Um, you're talking about teams, but, uh, you're talking about this, you're, and yeah. And in terms okay. of the philosophy, let's piggyback that though. Is yeah. AI a team member? Okay, so before we even get into this one, John, <laughs> you mentioned skepticism being important in problem space mm-hmm. analysis. And I think in order to be properly skeptical, you need to not be as emotionally tied as what we're talking about in some of the other ways. comes from negativity, theory. though. Am I wrong? I'm not saying negativity is a bad thing. And I'm not saying outcomes are a bad thing either. I'm saying that the emotional state that people get into when they panic about something taking over the world and, and get into that catastrophizing mindset where they can only see the bad possibilities is limiting. So when you say skeptical, to me, that means questioning. And maybe it's because I come from a science background that I'm like, okay, it's important to say it could be possible. But you could also be skeptical for the positive 
right? Like to me, there's like a gray area on the extreme zero to one scale there where you can hit 0.487, you know, if you're in skeptical range. But if you're driven by that emotional panic state, it's very much zero one, zero one. Is it going to kill me? Is it a threat? You know, and it's not being able to see any other possibility. Can I can I piggyback before John goes in on yeah, what you're saying? Sure. I feel like naturally, and that's what's like kind of tough, like in such like a multicultural environment. But like, I would say naturally, the pool of what you would pull your skepticism from is things that would not only be contrary to like your worldview, but things you don't want to believe anyway. Wait, what do you mean? Explain that you don't want to believe. Yeah, like uh, that's counteractive to the the the, inf- the solid information you have in your head. Like I feel mm-hmm. like that's where you're gonna pull skepticism from. So, for mm-hmm. example, um, let's say you're some person that, like, as I said, like somebody that believes in like the supernatural, mm-hmm. right? And yeah. something's happening in your home, and you feel like mm-hmm. it's a ghost or whatever or something like that. And then you it's have you somebody here, coming to say hi. Yeah, exactly. And you have somebody who has, you know, no thought in that. So they're going to investigate a loud sound or do these kind of things. So I think it comes from your knowledge base of what you're going to be skeptical of already. So that's why I feel like, as we said before, like skepticism is a very cultural and personal phenomenon before you even determine what it's all about. Yeah, that reminds me of the whole, uh, the more you know, the more you know you don't know. Because the more knowledge you gain about a certain area, the more you realize you have questions about it. And then the more questions you have about it, the more you realize the boundaries may not be what you thought they were. And then once you start pushing the boundaries, you start to realize that they're flexible. And you're like, oh, no, there's a hole in the fence. Yeah. You know, and then you start like, oh, my gosh, I have, I don't know anything at all. I thought the pen was and a four by four. And I think it becomes hard. And so, like, I feel like there's certain world, there's certain beliefs where you can't even convince somebody else because they've had too much data. Like, for example, let's say there's somebody who... Had, yeah, let's say, let's say, John, for example, let's say there's somebody who had a... Somebody broken... Somebody had a firearm. And let's say somebody broke into their house and they ended up uh, self-defending themselves and, and shooting this person, and now they're pro-gun. And let's say on the other side, somebody actually found a gun in their home and shot themselves by accident. And now they're in. I feel at that point with those hard beliefs in there, uh-huh. there's no changing the mind okay. in terms of that. And now you're going to pull your skepticism. Like, that's you know, you kind of see where I'm going with that when it comes to some I of these. Do. It's funny that you use that. It's funny you use that as an analogy. Kate and I were working on a project a while back and it was it was fascinating because we were we were classifying things, you know, just okay. trying to zero shot or few shot classifications. Very very basic fundamental machine learning, barely even in the AI scope of things. Um, and when you talk about things like that, it really it, and this really kind of doubles back into you know the existentialism and even the AIs and symbolism. We discovered that the machine learning in and of itself started looking at the United States with 
their their gun laws. I, I, I'm going to use gun laws in, in air quotes here. Um, we, we discovered that we were running into a real problem we couldn't solve because it kept classifying mass shootings as culture. United States culture. And it was eye-opening it, and it was yeah. it was sad it, it it was just one of those moments yeah. where all of a sudden everything that you've studied everything you work for just kind of came to a head and you're like shit i don't want to do this anymore <laughs> i don't need to see this and i work with covid data i saw some nasty nasty stuff as covid was happening but when when this happened and we we struggled for what weeks trying yeah. to figure out what to do we ended up having to effectively manually fix Make it and he, still yeah. would be pushing it back into into that yeah. scope because that's how bad it is and does this bring up one more thing with this and everything i mean now you're you're talking about that ai and the symbolism of that ai mm -hmm. being you know omnipotent in some ways or you know put on a sh put on a pedestal rather than put on a shelf uh -huh. um and and that that to me is bothersome but in it the is. it's like i couldn't do what i do if i didn't use ai on a daily basis i just couldn't keep up okay so i'm so sorry i'm like bursting at the seams go, ahead. go for it um yeah that was eye-opening and it also said something that we didn't want to see but ultimately was true and i think that's a very heavy commentary on American culture. I think this is a really good time to bring in the second half of the speaker here dynamics because there's a lot going on in this part that has to do with what we're talking about. And so they say there's like four, but there's actually, if you break it down, it's five stages of understanding a speaker. So, you know, someone's talking at you, something's being seen or read or a game is being played or something. When you're perceiving the utterance of another outside of yourself, there's the perception stage. So it's when you, you auditorily or visually or kinetically or whatever, you perceive the utterance as external stimuli coming from something other than yourself. You then go into two forms of analysis. So the first one is semantic analysis. So what is the literal meaning? of this phrase or, or symbol or recognition or, or something. Then you go into pragmatic analysis. So what is the meaning of the phrase within this particular context? So you kind of mesh those two analyses together in your brain and your brain does this automatically, by the way. Then there's the disambiguation phase. So which of these meanings is most likely to be true, given what I know about this situation, environment, context, speaker, even person? You're like, okay, so given what I know about Kate, she said this thing and it could mean this or that. Within this context and what I know about her, this is probably what she meant. And then the final stage is called incorporation. So this is where you accept your essentially analysis of the utterance as basically probably what they mean. So you accept the utterance and information based on analysis results as, okay, I think this is what they're saying. And then you move forward with believing that is quote unquote true or true for now. That's so cool. How do we incorporate that into AI? Because that's not how AI works. Uh, I, I actually would very much argue that. Really? Yeah. Yeah. hundred um, percent. Because I, mean, I get the incorporation part, but 
I mean, there's there's no skepticism. Uh, you and I both have built systems together that do semantic and pragmatic analysis. Well, yeah, semantic and that type of stuff. But does the data, it's the human that challenges the data in the, oh, the input. So this isn't about challenging. That's a really, really great point that you just brought up there. So when I talk about the stages of the hearer, nothing in this is about challenging themselves their understanding of what just happened or of the speaker themselves. This is literally just straight up acceptance. Yeah, straight up just like you said, straight up acceptance. I hear that, go straight up acceptance. This is what it means. This is what I'm hearing. Okay, cool. That's it. It's like a child before they, you know, where everything's literal. Yeah, it's literally just perceiving the sounds of the phrase and then moving forward. You haven't even reacted yet. Like this hasn't even hit the, I, I want to understand more or think about this for a minute or respond, nothing yet. Literally just taken in the symbols. Eric, you're bouncing. I know you got to say something. Yeah. <laughs> it's so bizarre. This is like, so I've always get these, like I'm taking in all this information and I'm kind of uh, cross-referencing all my data. That's where my, my brain works, unfortunately. Like when you're coming in, it's cross-referencing things. Why is that unfortunate? That's amazing. I know, but it's giving me new perspectives on things. And it's so bizarre because like, as like a screenwriter, I create these artificial intelligence and these speakers. And like, I know that I have their direct text, which the only thing anybody's going to ever read if I give them a script, they're going to see white page with text. Huh. And I've created with all these different speakers and characters and different descriptions, et cetera, right? Yeah. And it's so interesting because... Subtext is everything. Subtext is everything. Um, it's in terms of like looking at the deeper meaning. But the funny part is that after I've created this artificial intelligence or I've created these characters and all these things, I now have to work with a human agent. Yes. Yeah. And if you're a, if you're uh, if you're like a ruthless director, you're going to want them to create a facsimile of exactly what you're saying and just project or almost mimic exactly what you what, what you're like putting a, a better director you're going to have them absorb into their own machine and then now spit out a new version of it that incorporates their understanding of it it's it's that is probably one of the most beautiful explanations of what is actually becoming relatively popular in AI right wow. now, which is RLHF or reinforcement learning through human feedback. That's beautiful. Um, it, yeah, right. I mean, I could show you the math formulas to it and everything, and you know, where do human injects and where do human disappears? Um, the human's ephemeral uh, for that part, but it, I mean, it's, it, it, it's a really, really great way to look at it because mm-hmm. I'm guilty of it kate you're guilty of it and eric i'm sure you're guilty of it in 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 different ways and i mean we use you know vernacular nomenclature that we're familiar with um when kate and i first started working together our concept of models was completely different and it took us like a week and a half to figure that out Because he would say model, and I'd be like, mm. and I'd say model, and he'd be like, mm. and we're both just talking about like modules versus operators versus model, yeah. quote unquote. Quote. But yeah, sorry, go on. Oh, okay. No, um, if that's the end of that point, um, what I want to say, uh, oh shoot, now I'm forgetting it. Okay, you go, go, go. I'll, I'll come back to it if it pops up. 
shoot. Yeah, so I'm learning more about your guys' like AI talk and AI culture, just the same way when you get into like film talk. Somebody sent like an Instagram post about like what all these things mean, and I feel like it'd be so useful for us to put together some oh. sort of uh, like jargon like yes. sheet. Because you're eventually going to start playing with it. That's what we did. Yeah. And that's how you learn. So, like, I've always just learned through osmosis. Yeah. But, um, and modeling. Like, I can say that. I'm like, osmosis and modeling. Like, I'm somebody that I could never, I'm not somebody that could just, like, I can only, um, advance something that has a, a standard set to it. So something's good. So like when I'm when I'm thinking about film ideas, oh, I never try to copy anybody. I look at different yeah. things where I'm like, oh, they did this this way, but this is how it could be better, and I could do it differently. So um, two things. Like I remember what I right? forgot I was going to say, and then the second thing um, is the Cooper and Fox idea. Okay. The first thing I was going to say is to your point, John. Mixed initiative systems engineering is essentially the exact same thing, except it was hot in the 80s and 90s. And then they're just like painting a peg and calling it something new. The reinforcement human, blah, 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 blah. It's basically the same thing. And it's like, it's the same as XAI when they were all into prompt engineering and stuff like that. I'm like, dude, if you just like read some stuff, you'll realize you can learn from the last like 40 decades instead of just like the new hot topic. You're talking chain of thought, tree of thought, those type of things. We've been doing this for probably centuries. And it's like, wait, exactly. And like, that goes back to what Eric said too. It's just like past civilizations were incredibly sophisticated and did a lot of amazing things. Where's the homage? Like, but um, yeah, so principles of modeling. And I find this really fascinating. And I can thank my my advisor, bless uh, Dr. Robert West for getting me hooked on learning about the concept of modeling as I learned to model things. And Cooper and Fox write about the principles of what it means to have a model of something. And there's two main components, which is completeness and faithfulness. So completeness means that if it is a model, it needs to be as complete as possible to the phenomenon in which you are representing. And if it is faithful, so the faithfulness component means that the physical properties and behavior components need to be as faithful as possible in order to say they actually represent that phenomenon. So when we do behavioral economics and cognitive modeling, that means if you're going to say that your agent, your AI daydreams, it needs to be as complete to say, for example, the human brain as possible and then have it fact-checked and representative appropriately and as faithful to the components that produce that daydreaming in an autonomous way that you have not predetermined as the designer. So it needs to be emergent properties, much like daydreaming. And I give this example because it was my master's thesis. I created an AI that daydreamed and it was a time. I can tell you that much because I couldn't tell the agent to daydream. It had to be a quote unquote organic production of the system that had the right components for this phenomenon to occur within the similar environments in which a human would produce a daydream. So it had to do it on its own. And so this is something about modeling or producing models that I think a lot of people who say they do these things forget. Even if you use bloody Legos, you could make a model of something 
that had similar physical properties or like a building or something. You could do it to scale. <laughs> but it, it's those two principles that really, I think, uh, make or break the validity of it. You know, it's it's funny because the the what I would refer to as the academic approach of modeling um, is is kind of proliferating into the engineering when you're working with the LLMs. And I'm talking beyond, hey, chat with your CSV file or chat with your PDF and everything, all these tutorials that get regurgitated a thousand different ways. When you're really developing a sincere system um, that I would call an AI, I don't call these LLMs an AI, they're a model. They are correlations, they are numbers, they are networks, trees, graphs, however you want to call them. Anyway, um, you know, spade is a spade. But when we develop the agents around them, there's a concept within the agents now that we provide tools to the agent right. and what's what's my interesting tools, right? yeah so absolutely my keyboard's a tool to interact with my yeah. computer as much as my mouse right. is and my camera yeah. and my voice yeah. and stuff like that yeah. um it's it's fascinating because what i'm seeing though is the agents themselves are scary in the fact that i provide the tools and when mm-hmm. i create the tools yeah. i write a description in human language on what that mm-hmm. tool does what it can do and if it's yeah. complex or really you know niche you give it an example of what it does and the agent itself picks it if it needs it and mm-hmm. i've actually watched agents that you know got a half a dozen tools assigned to them which would be a fairly complex agent um yeah. actually skip tools because it's unnecessary to the question posed to it that to me is it's boggling my mind um because i love that i do too it is magic all of a sudden i can't explain it i got freaking schrodinger here man beauty of it because if you're accurately representing the human brain and the correct modules necessary for that thought and complex task performance which is what we do in cognitive modeling and agent design then if your agent is using tools in a creative new way for the environment you've done your job to me that was like always what i was taught was the standard so my advisor used to always be like hey if your agent is running in the environment that's already a feat you know, you're bound to so many constraints in representing human brain behavior in a computer that that's already something. So the fact that the agents are going like, oh, I don't need this. I'll use that instead means that you're, you're doing it correctly because you're not supposed it, to tell yeah. an agent what to do. I may have to touch on this. Like, I may have to touch on this in the in, in my next episode and everything is, is kind of what is prompting and what is prompt engineering yeah. and those mm. concepts. Yeah. Because what's odd and... It, it it should have jumped right at me, but it didn't, is when I was writing the description of these agents, it took me a couple passes because sometimes it would just, it would run it. And I'm like, why are you even using this? It has nothing to do with it. You know, I'm asking it for, you know, US open scores and everything, and it's looking at the stock market. It's like, what the hell? Um, I realized that those descriptors are as much a prompt as they are anything else. Um, and all of a sudden, the the concepts behind a prompt, the, the, the details into it, um, when you do stuff like, you know, mid-journey or stable diffusion, it's a different type of prompting, um, which is a very accidental prompting, by the way, and I'll get yeah. into that. Um, and it's it was fascinating because 
I can see why people that don't work in the field can see or think that it's it, it, it's sentient or it's reading my mind or something like that um, because there is there's 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 a beauty to it there's a, there's a magic to it um, but it's not I mean it's probabilities nothing more and everything. I know a lot of people would like to smack me for saying that, but that's, to me, that's all it is. You're going to dig into that next time. But, uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I want to talk, talk more about that. Cause like, I relate that to like our experience. You know what I mean? Oh, like, wow. We claim to be sentient and like, so in charge of our, our life, but a lot of it's based on probability. Like we do not run the oxygen. You know what I mean? Like in terms of, so it's so funny. Like I love talking with uh, you guys about this machine learning because when it comes to my perspective of humanity, I look at us as supercomputer machines and like plants. That's like how I look at humans, like plants slash trees because we're so dependent on our our environment and, and like, these outside factors so it's so funny that when it comes to like ai and now it becomes like now I, what are the users on chat gpt now like now we have like six seven people like interacting with this with this phenomenon 24 24 7 you know what i mean i'm just wondering what the next iteration of of things will be like especially when it comes to things in terms of uh elon musk or inputting some sort of microchip in your brain that like now I can learn martial arts almost like the matrix because these things kung fu it has to be because like in terms of our imagination which I think yeah. is the best part of human intelligence because we're not as deterministic as other animals but our imagination I was like walking down the street like I think about that kind of stuff I was like oh my gosh like is everybody going to be able to fight are we going to become like weird superhumans in a certain way because <laughs> we're, we're take, like i'm telling you like right now with the, the google we're taking in so much information all the time there has to be a point in in the future where when we're purchasing data or we're purchasing these these we're, instead of paying for a degree to go to school i feel like you'll be purchasing certain data that goes right into your right into your brain Okay, so what gets me about this and what I love, love, love about what you're saying, Eric, is that culture and society is going to have to catch up. Because when I think about all those changes and the access to information and knowledge, all this technology, when it becomes accessible, and I say when because we're a part of the solution here, um, what is going to happen to our government? What is going to happen to our economy? What is going to happen to our world? And how can we make sure that we shape it in a way that makes it better for humanity, better for the world? And and when I say world, I mean Earth as well, you know, the climate, animals, uh, you know, the fact that we could potentially do something about climate change and global warming becoming a thing. If we are able to better educate our people, all people, I don't just mean in my country, I mean, all people, what would happen to the world and how limiting do you think those corrupt structures of companies and corporations will, will sorry, I can see you just well, you're, like, you're, you're yeah. touching on something okay, though, that AI needs to fix itself. 
I mean, there was a real fear when they were training GPT-4 that a, that a town nearby was going to run out of water because of the amount of water required to cooling. AI is probably one of the top contributors to global warming right now. Yeah. Is that a, a good thing? Is it benefiting society? You know, I mean, it's, you know, yeah. it's, it's a this or that. Um, I don't think it is because why are people not putting more, sorry, sidebar, no, no, go ahead. Go ahead. on that team, I'd be trying to develop a solution immediately to generate and self-generate water. Okay. And like produce, like that's exactly what I would want my team to be working on as well. Because in tandem, now you're talking about energy, energy well, production, and we're getting into physics. Go so back to uh, my my worldview and my favorite book, because like I get oh, deep, okay. I get deep we're actually almost done, so this is perfect. I get deep into it. So, like, and I always talk with like young kids, and like, so one guy when I was growing up, and I was about like 25 years old. I had this one guy that was older than me. Cool his, his name was Kurt. His name was Kurt. And he had like this young boy with him named Rory, funny enough, 19 years old. And I was like, you're pretty, you're much older than us. Why do you stay with them? He's like, it keeps me fresh. It keeps me up to date. I like to always stay with younger, like have younger kids around me, keep me fresh. So that's okay. always in my head. And I'm lucky enough that like, I'm always close enough to the young generation so that I can see their thought processes and all these kind of things. Government, people don't like government and these new kids do not like control. And it's so funny that if I go to my favorite book, um, um, the Bible, if you go to the chapter of 1 Samuel and like whatever in terms of the Bible, you're dealing with the history of Israel, right? And Israel was always looking as a distinct nation. And and the way they used to govern themselves is they had these rules from God, also known as the Ten Commandments or the Torah, and everybody collectively would reinforce these rules. Mm. And now you are judged in your community by whether you're following these rules or not. And I feel like we do that already on a social level, but it's not yeah, like a government official level, which when you're talking about all these altruistic things, I'm like, yeah, like, trust me, like the people would love to like, just be like, what works for everybody, but we don't work in a society like that. So it's so no. funny in first Samuel um, and Samuel, the, the prophet, he gets very upset because Israel asked for a king. They want a king for the first time. They wanna be like the other nations. They're like, we don't wanna just keep the rules ourselves and listen to God. We need somebody to have a king. Huh. And at one point God chastises them by saying, okay, no problem. You can have a king, but if the king's good, but the king will take your land. So the king will start taking your land. They'll start taking your taxes. They'll start using your kids for soldiers. You're going to have to start working for them. And if your king's good, you'll be okay. But if your king's bad, it'll be bad. So from my perspective, the governance, if there's information going, I feel like the governance right now in the world is an illusion. And they're kind of fighting on for control while people have all this information and these tools to like just live how they want to do and start experimenting. And most of the ancient, most of the biggest discoveries and innovations are really coming from regular people playing in autodidacts like John and Kane, just like just experimenting with your imagination. And that becomes a threat to any control system of like the, 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 the modern human being. And that's why I feel like some of that hysteria is 
propaganda. So this is the perfect place for us to stop today because this is an insanely cool can of worms that I know we are diving into so soon for episode five. I want to thank you all for being here with us today. This has been another episode of AI Impressions, and we are your hosts. I am Kate Dudzik. John Diltz. Eric Yensu. Thanks again, and see you next time.